Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, Dada, with the Wednesday Night Wars edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. And you folks know on Getting Over, it is all about the five. That is why we are all about you guys leaving five-star ratings and reviews wherever you listen to this podcast but particularly on Apple Podcasts. Every single time one of you drops a five-star rating, it boosts us up in the Apple rankings. That means more listeners to the show and more good stuff coming your way in the future. We are in the middle of an absolutely busy week here in the Getting Over world. Not only did we already drop our WWE episode on Tuesday, which also served as our Hell in a Cell Ultimate Preview, we're back here to talk NXT and AEW Dynamite on Thursday and then Sunday. We will have instant analysis immediately after the pay-per-view is off the air of WWE Hell in a Cell. There is so much happening in the world of wrestling. G1 Climax 30 wrapped up. The Silver King still a little bit behind on that. I need to watch a couple more matches before maybe I do a segment on one of these shows coming up about my thoughts on how it finished. But I am excited about that. Impact has a big pay-per-view coming up. Whether I'm going to be able to watch that or not this weekend remains to be seen. But NXT also has Halloween Havoc coming next week, Wednesday night. So what this show is going to be, it's going to be a mix of a few things. We're going to break down NXT as we always do. Then we're going to do a mini ultimate preview of Halloween Havoc ahead of next week. We're not going to have time or space to do a separate episode of that. And then we're also going to break down AEW Dynamite a few weeks out from their full gear pay-per-view. So what that means is next week's show will be the analysis of Halloween Havoc along with a look at AEW as it's still a couple weeks out from full gear, which is already shaping up to be a pretty significant pay-per-view for the company. Hopefully a big bounce back show uh, considering some of the struggles they had on their last pay-per-view outing. But with that as far in the future... We're here to talk about the present, and the present is what happened this Wednesday night on NXT and AEW. So let's go ahead and get started with NXT, and we will kind of talk the main event storyline from the show before we move into the rest of NXT, and then save a couple details from Wednesday night show for our NXT Halloween Havoc Ultimate Preview. Once again, every single episode of Getting Over has timestamp in the description, so If you want to hear NXT, if you want to hear AEW, if you want to skip back and forth, you will be able to check out our description and find out exactly when you need to scan to. But we are starting with NXT today, and let's start with the main storyline that took place throughout the show, and it was the attacking of Undisputed Era and the tease for a potential breakup that we thought has been coming since the TakeOver 31 pay-per-view. In the first hour, we got Adam Cole and Undisputed Era altogether cutting a promo backstage without a hint of dissension, which is something that we have seen in prior episodes of NXT ever since TakeOver 31. All of a sudden, a couple segments later, Bobby Fish gets attacked backstage. Kyle O'Reilly agrees to replace him in the tag team title match against Brizango later in the show. And then Roderick Strong gets attacked a few segments later. O'Reilly's back there, refuses a new partner. So Oni Lurkin and Danny Burch step up into the match against Brizongo. It was almost like Undisputed Era was playing a faction game of Among Us or something. And you're sitting there wondering while you're watching the show, 
Who's the imposter? Is yellow sus? Like, what exactly is happening with this storyline? But once they inserted Oni Lorcan and Danny Burch into the main event, which was a tag team title match against Brizongo, unfortunately, you know, we're honest here, I became far less interested in the match with the challenger change, which is a rough deal for a main event. But as it turns out, NXT completely swerved me with that and probably swerved most of you as well. Most of the match did not really hold my attention. And I thought the referee let them get away with double teams a bit longer than they should have, than the referee should have, which is always my criticism for AEW and their tag team matches. And we will talk about that a little bit later. But that said, all of that said, the finish popped me. Birch hit a cool draping cutter off the top rope, but Brizango fought back and it looked like they were ready to go for a finisher, a couple high-risk maneuvers, when Fandango out of nowhere got pushed off of the top rope by someone wearing a metal mask. That person then jumped off the ring apron, climbed underneath the ring, Breeze ate a low blow from Birch, and the challengers took the titles. It was quite cool that in a matter of months, Fandango, Tyler Breeze, Oni Lorcan, and Danny Birch have now all of a sudden added titles to their resume. The strange thing is this was a pretty hot shot tag team title change considering Brizango just beat Imperium for it a few weeks ago. And now we have Oni Lorcan and Danny Burch taking over the titles. But that's all my thoughts in that moment. The masked man jumps back into the ring and it is revealed to be none other than Pat McAfee, which makes a lot of sense from a storyline perspective. Now the question here, and at nflynn underscore 17, Nick Flynn on Twitter, asked it, but I had actually taken these notes already, is whether the development of Pat McAfee coming back to NXT, maybe leading some type of group or faction with Oni Lorcan and Danny Burch, whether that is a plan B due to Ridge Holland being hurt or whether this was always the plan. So you need to think back a little bit to Ridge Holland being hurt and what transpired on that episode. Do you remember when you first saw Ridge Holland on that episode of NXT, he arrived at the arena in a Mercedes-Benz. It would make a lot more sense for Pat McAfee, who in his promos leading up to the Adam Cole match talked about how rich he was, how he's been made a millionaire in so many different types of professions. It would make a lot of sense for Pat to be buying him a Mercedes as opposed to someone like Bobby Fish or Roderick Strong, or something like that, right? And it certainly makes more sense for him to be buying it than Lorcan or Birch. So maybe this Undisputed Era split that we thought had been teased, that we have been discussing for weeks dating back to the pay-per-view, maybe this was supposed to be a swerve the entire time. And if that's the case, NXT and Triple H, they deserve a lot of credit for top-tier booking by really pointing us in one direction and pulling out the rug from us and going in a different direction. The key though, is even if this is a plan B, which we don't know whether it is or not, and I would love to interview Triple H or any of the people involved and find out the real answer. But even if it was a plan B, it has been booked in such a way where it doesn't seem like one. It seems like this was the plan all along, potentially to have a foursome of Pat McAfee, Oni Lork, and Danny Burch with Ridge Holland being the heavy. So a four-man team to go up against Undisputed Era's four-man team. That is how it is coming off to me. So 
I am going to give them credit for positive booking, I'm going to say that this is such good shit. Now, whether that ends up being the case, we find out something later, it doesn't really matter, but this popped me. Was it the biggest pop I've ever had for something that happened in NXT? No. Was I caught off guard by it? Absolutely. But nevertheless, good booking is good booking. This is a piece of good booking. Off the bat, I am not to the moon, let's say, about the grouping of Lorcan, Birch, and McAfee. But I guess with Holland in there, it probably would have come across really hot. What I did like a lot is the post-show promo that Pat McAfee cut in the ring, which you can go find on social media. He's posted it in a couple places. And now what I'm curious about is how they are going to develop the storyline next week and beyond. I'm excited to see that the plan going forward involves these seven guys, and it doesn't really involve the main event picture, but rather the tag team picture and a couple fringe people as well. It smells like they're planning a war games match. Now, the question is, if they are going in that direction, and if that was the plan all along, who do you get to fill that final spot? Do you bring over someone possibly from NXT UK? Do you reach into your current roster and find someone else who you can turn heel and fit into that group? That is the important question. But either way, the end result here is that Undisputed Era is now without question a face faction, which is a nice change and a good long-term development for them because if you're going to keep them in NXT, and look, we thought they were going to go to Raw or SmackDown during the draft, but if you're going to keep them in NXT, you need to develop them in a different way. Them being heels and being going after the gold rush and the prophecy and just doing that again would have gotten monotonous. At least now there's something new happening with this group that we can get excited about. Now, this NXT started with Kushida against Tommaso Ciampa and Velveteen Dream in a triple threat match. It was a really unique combination of wrestlers here. And it was particularly cool to see Ciampa and Kushida in the ring together, which is not something I've ever seen before, but something I've always wanted to happen. Dream was pretty sloppy early in the match, though he did the Dream Valley driver spot before the commercial break. That was good. Kushida was really the standout. He really looked like his old self here. There were a number of good false finishes in this match, but the real finish was great with Kushida pushing Champa into Dream who hit him over the head with his cast so Kushida could then hit that German suplex pinning combination and get the win. This was a really good way to put Kushida over again, continuing his ascent while immediately creating a Champa Dream feud which should be entertaining. We've seen them fight before. I believe it was a NXT title match at a takeover and it was really damn good. So maybe Champa can pull something out of Dream that has really been missing since he returned. Kushida seems to be on this upward trajectory. Where is he gonna go? Is it gonna be an NXT title opportunity? Is he gonna challenge Damian Priest or maybe Johnny Gargano for the North American Championship? There's a lot of cool things you can do with Kushida, but he's finally coming into his own in NXT, which is a little bit less of the dorky back to the future stuff, a little bit more aggressive Japanese competitor that we saw in New Japan. And that is what I really liked from Kushida. Next up was Ember Moon against Jesse Kamiya. Considering I thought this was going to be a squash match, this far exceeded my expectations. Kamiya put up a fight, Moon let her get in a bunch of offense, but Ember Moon also showed some innovation and new style. She did a standing moonsault, a code breaker off the second rope, and then the finish was really cool. It was like an inverted Texas cloverleaf with a choke, 
submission move for the win. Really nice additions to her moveset. And despite that initial in-ring promo of Ember Moon when she came back to NXT being really rough, everything they've done since, the video package last week, the presentation of her in this match, huge steps forward, great steps in the right direction. After the match, we got Dakota Kai attacking Moon. That's setting up another feud. This was a winner all around. And one thing you're going to hear in this analysis of NXT and AEW and I should have mentioned this off the top, but I didn't. I absolutely loved both shows on Wednesday night. There was very little that NXT or AEW did wrong. And even a match like this where you think, oh, it's just going to be a squash and we'll move on. He won't talk about it that much. No, there was actually a lot of meat on this bone. There was a lot of stuff to talk about coming out of an Ember Moon Jesse Camia match. And it really goes to show how strong the booking for NXT and AEW was on Wednesday night. We had Bronson Reed defeat Austin Theory twice in a single segment. Considering Theory's put on some bangers recently with some pretty big names, let's not forget, like Tommaso Ciampa and Johnny Gargano, I thought this was going to be a similar type of match, but that's not what we got. Reed went over really strong here. He won the first one with the Tsunami. Theory calls him back. Reed immediately caught him in midair for a Umaga-like Samoan drop, which we haven't seen in a really long time. That was awesome. Can't hate on it. This worked really well for both guys, especially considering it got Bronson Reed over strong with two wins over a talented guy in Austin Theory, but then they sold Theory's losing streak that he's now one and eight in his last nine matches. His only win in those matches is over Leon Ruff, so it's hardly a win, but Theory basically grabbed his suitcase, jumped into a car, and quit. And now the question is, what's going to happen with that? But what I love is that they're clearly telling a story here And I do wonder if it has to do with some of the Johnny Gargano stuff we got last week. And we will talk about that momentarily, but I do have another DM slide here. It's from Nick Z at nzannyboney93. I don't know if I'm late to this, he says, but Bronson Reed has a great, great entrance. Song is a banger and the video effects are great. Who do you think has the best video music combo? So I'm not sure if this is being asked specifically for NXT or WWE or all of wrestling. I'll say this, Bronson Reeds is great and it's actually moving up the scale slowly. Aleister Black had a fantastic one. Karrion Cross right now probably has the best overall entrance in all of wrestling. It's done extremely well. It's tough. WWE, because you're asking about video music combo. In WWE on Raw and SmackDown, very few wrestlers these days actually have video packages of any type that help. A lot of them are just their name or a couple graphics or a logo or something like that. So there's very few who have anything notable. Braun Strowman's new package is pretty great considering they do the smoke like a train and it, it kind of fits with the train kind of running into the screen. Um, Aleister Black's new one is okay, not great. I guess The Fiends is really special, especially inside the Thunderdome, the new stuff that we saw, but there's not a lot of people that have great entrances. Even if you move over to AEW, Cody's is completely overdone. Moxley basically comes out of the crowd. The new Kenny Omega one is pretty cool. If you saw that on Wednesday night, we can talk about that a little bit later. But there's not a lot of great like overall entrance packages right now. I would probably put Bronson Reed, especially if we keep it to WWE right now, 
I'd probably put him in the top 10, um, maybe top five. It's great. It's a King Kong-esque type of entrance. And he's called the Colossal Bronson Reed, which is a great name for him. Way better than Thick Boy. I know it's funny calling him Thick Boy, but take him seriously. I want wrestlers to be taken seriously. This guy is legitimately colossal and his moveset is incredible. So Bronson Reed, man, he has gotten pushed, you know, not to steal Cameron Grimes' line, to the moon, despite not being in a title match one-on-one. And it's just great to see the way NXT is developing a lot of this new talent. And there's just no better example right now than Bronson Reed. Very happy with what we've seen from him. We also got a six-man tag team match, Legato Del Fantasma defeating Isaiah Swerve Scott, Jake Atlas, and Ashante the Adonis. Now, when we talk on this show about meat flying around and big meaty men slapping meat, that does not really take into account six cruiserweights wrestling. But there is something to be said for what we got here. Put your meat on my meat, man. Gently now. You're good. You're good. Gen- please, time. gently, yeah, yeah. gently. I'm, I'm delicate. It was just a little bit more of a gentle meat on meat action. But this match, and I got to at some point get a sound drop that talks about bangers because I don't really have one. But this match was a freaking banger. Morning Woods is what Xavier calls it. That might be what he calls it. Uh, this kind of gave a little bit of that. This thing was incredible. Swerve, first of all, at some point early in the match, he exited the ring. And he did a flip over the top rope, a handstand on the ring apron, and then flipped again and stood face-to-face with Santos Escobar. That's crazy. First of all, it's great. You could break his neck doing that. And if I even attempted that, I'd be in the hospital for a week. It, It was just so athletic and crazy. This guy has so much freaking swagger to him. You guys know, there is no bigger fan of two people, Santos Escobar and Isaiah Swerve Scott, maybe in all of wrestling, than the Silver King. Seeing these guys work programs together, it's just, I mean, it's top tier stuff from NXT. And I want it to be about so much more than the Cruiserweight Championship. This should be a North American title feud. Santos Escobar is ready right now today to be a main eventer in NXT. And you could take him and drop him on Raw or SmackDown. And he could contend for a mid-card title today. So the fact that he's stuck in this cruiserweight situation. It just bothers me because they there are so many other cruiserweights that could be carrying that division. And Escobar and Swerve could be doing so much more. But that's just how the match started. Swerve hit an insanely great corkscrew off the top rope outside. The problem is it hit absolutely nobody. He landed right in the middle of Legato del Fantasma. None of them touched him. Uh, but no shocker, this was a quite entertaining match considering the talent of all six guys in the ring. There was an absolutely wild tope Spanish fly moonsault to the outside that took out about four guys. Then you saw Escobar hit Swerve with an absurd tope spear before Atlas knocked him out with a cartwheel DDT off the announce table. Jokin Wild and Raul Mendoza eventually got the win with this Russian leg sweep spinning heel kick combination on Adonis. This was just a fantastic six-man tag team match, maybe like 3.75 stars. You could maybe even get to four, but probably not. There, It wasn't long enough. There wasn't enough false finishes. It didn't feel like it mattered. The, there, the crowd wasn't behind it to that level, but this was really damn good. Like I said, 3.75 around that range. All six of these guys were great. Huge fan of this match. It may have been 
the match of the night, if not for something that happened in AEW, which definitely took it one step further. But man, these guys put on an absolute banger. And if you guys can come up or or think of in the past any type of sound drop where I can start using banger or bang besides DDP, um, let me know and I'll add it to the collection. We'll keep going here with NXT. Ever Rise defeated Killian Dane and Drake Maverick in a tag team match. This took a bit of an unexpected turn for me. It was a really short match with Dane randomly being unable to get out of a sharpshooter, Maverick getting bullied at ringside, and then he totally snapped, grabbed a chair, and beat the shit out of Everize with a steel chair. So much so that Dane loved it and grew respect for him, showing aggression for the first time ever. You guys know I love everything about this team. So this was a great move, great storyline direction. It's very much a Shrek and Donkey type of pairing. You only have the meat coming from one side, but both of them together, they have it. And I'm really excited that they have developed Killian Dane and Drake Maverick into a tag team. We saw Casey Kent Nazaro defeat Zia Lee. Casey looked really good here, actually. This is the best she has come across in the ring yet. She also doesn't get that many one-on-one opportunities, especially when to win, which I don't think, I could be wrong. I don't think she has a singles win in NXT before this one. So this was fantastic. It was a short match, but the roll-up with Casey locking her wrists together was a really nice finish. Zia Lee turned heel afterwards by attacking Casey. This coming a couple weeks after receiving that letter and from Boa like dropped off a letter to her and then she begged William Regal to give her a match. So there's some intrigue here. There's a storyline that's developing and this is a low card storyline. So I'm definitely curious to see where it goes. But you guys know I've said it a couple times, Casey and Caden Carter, that tag team really works for me. They are, they are, there's a dearth of women's tag teams on the main roster. I don't know that you want to bring them up right away because it feels like if you do that, they'll wind up on main event. But there's just something unique about Casey that makes you want to watch what she's doing. And again, just throw them kind of on SmackDown where they could use more women's wrestlers. They could use another women's tag team. And I think they could do it right now. Maybe they're, they feel like they're still too green, but I think Caden Carter can carry them enough so that Casey can continue developing. But I just like her. I, I like her. I like Zia Lee. And I thought this was a good match. Uh, we also got a Thatch as Thatch can live training session on NXT. And you guys know I've been very down on the video packages. But Timothy Thatcher doing a training session live, it just worked better for me than the opposite. He got the trainee's name wrong. He overexerted the lock. The trainee attacked Thatcher out of anger. And then Thatcher out of nowhere called for a match so he could beat the shit out of this guy legally. I'm still not sure how long the legs are for this gimmick in particular, but this was an improvement over what we had seen previously. And I don't want this every week, but if we got it once a month, as you continue trying to build up Thatcher for a program with someone, I don't think I would hate it. So that's our breakdown of NXT. You guys notice I missed a couple things that was on purpose because I was saving them for our NXT Halloween Havoc Ultimate Preview. Obviously, it's only gonna be so ultimate considering there's four matches and it's a TV show. But nevertheless, we're gonna break down that card right now. First up, we have Dexter Loomis versus Cameron Grimes in a Haunted House of Terror match. Grimes was hysterical in his backstage promo, learning about the stipulation for this match, while Loomis kind of stalked him from behind that glass door. It's almost like Grimes is a character out of Looney Tunes, like somewhat of, I don't I can't even place him 
exactly, but it seems like he's a cartoon character come to life as a real person, as a professional wrestler. The gimmick did not seem like a winner for me when he started it, but he has really developed it in a major way. When you get to this match, obviously there's the stipulation. You have to believe Dexter Loomis is going to go over. Grimes is currently in a position where he does not need to win feuds to be over. He's completely over. His to the moon slogan is over. They they made shirts out of it. There is a lot of long-term potential in Cameron Grimes, but you just brought Dexter Loomis back from injury. I don't see a scenario where he does not come out on top by the time this match is over. We also have Rhea Ripley versus Raquel Gonzalez. No stipulation on this match. On NXT Wednesday night, we got Gonzalez coming in, ruining all three women after the Zia Lee match, ending with that crazy chokeslam, powerbomb type of move one-handed on Caden Carter. It's a really good way to get Gonzalez some extra heat and build for the Ripley match. The only thing I didn't like is we didn't actually get to see Rhea Ripley live on the show. I would not have hated for Rhea Ripley to get a squash match or to cut a backstage interview. I know they did a video package that she voiced over, but she's the biggest women's star in the company right now, maybe aside from Mio Shirai. You wanna see her on your quote unquote go home show, even though it's not a pay-per-view. And that's actually something NXT has done a few times. They've left off major talent on such types of go home shows. And, and again, this is nitpicking a little bit, just saying, I like Rhea Ripley. I would have liked to have seen Rhea Ripley. Now, the next two matches, the two main event matches are spin the wheel, make a deal matches. There's about 12, I think, or 13 different gimmicks on a wheel that's going to be spun. And we're going to find out what the stipulations of these matches are when they start, presumably. I assume they're going to do it right before the match begins. But previewing both of these, they've been grouped together from the very beginning. Their Gargano's at home segment was great. You guys know I love them. This week with the training wheel, it totally worked. Gargano flipping out over first getting buried alive and then casket matches while Candice LeRae basically just got a trick or street fight. It just keeps developing their characters, both of them as a married couple. And I just really love the dynamic there. So obviously they both had matches at TakeOver 31. And I thought going into TakeOver, they both would win the titles because they would help each other. That's not what happened. The question here is what the stipulations for their matches are going to be and how that might affect the outcome. Because really, there are some match stipulations where I could see Priest and Shirai retaining and others where Gargano and Candice LeRae would win the titles. The question is, what are they going to be? What I am starting to wonder, and I noted this a bit earlier, is they spent a good amount of time uh, on one of the Dinner with the Garganos or Home with the Garganos episodes with Indy Hartwell gifting a high-definition television. Then I believe it was last week on NXT, Austin Theory had the match with Johnny Gargano. After the match, they purposely kept the camera on Johnny Gargano, rubbing his chin, looking back at Austin Theory, impressed at his performance in the match. So now I'm starting to wonder, could they devise a scenario where the stipulations are such that they're no disqualification, which you have to assume all of these will be no disqualification, but that Austin Theory will come in and help Johnny Gargano, and Indy Hartwell will come in and help Candice LeRae, and both of them win the titles off Damian Priest and Io Shirai. That's kind of where I'm leaning, that they didn't do the title change at the pay-per-view at TakeOver, and they're holding off a double title change for Gargano and LeRae to win the titles on Halloween Havoc. 
And then presumably if they end up doing another takeover next month, if they do a War Games pay-per-view, possibly have rematches for a third time for these matches. I hate that. It's stale. NXT doesn't normally do that. I could possibly see them going in that direction. So I don't know. It's really tough. If the stipulations are not such where interference makes sense, and if we don't see Theory and Hartwell, then I kind of lean towards Priest and Shirai retaining. But from a booking standpoint, I think Priest, as I said on a prior episode, he has already been elevated by being the North American champion. I think he's ready to move into the main event picture. So you can take the title off him. Gargano having that title would make a lot of sense because there's way more faces for him to challenge than there are heels now to face Damian Priest. On the women's side, again, Io Shirai, she's had a really nice run with the title since winning that triple threat match and beating Charlotte Flair. It felt like she should have been called up to the main roster, that she should have lost the title at 31, been drafted to SmackDown, keep her apart from Asuka. But if they're not going to call her up, then she should retain. Maybe they're going to do a delayed call-up and Candice LeRae will win and she'll be up on SmackDown, you know, next Friday or the week following after that, or maybe a surprise person who joins for Survivor Series. I don't know these answers, but as of today, and we're still a week out, so Silver King is allowed to change his mind. I'm going to go with a double title change. I think Johnny Gargano and Candice LeRae may both win the North American and Women's Championship respectively. And by the way, I do expect Io Shirai and Candice LeRae to main event the Halloween Havoc pay-per-view. Also, one last thing before we get to AEW here, I love the direction they're going with Halloween Havoc. I mentioned it before. It's simultaneously serious and campy. They're going to do a costume contest. Shotzi Blackheart is going to host it. Overall, really excited for the direction of Halloween Havoc. And I have total confidence that Triple H is going to pull it off extremely well. Okay, let's move over to AEW Dynamite. This episode of Dynamite is what I kind of always expected AEW to be. Wrestling forward, sports-centric, really good matches, yet some campy, funny stuff inserted in between. You guys know I have mixed feelings on Dynamite week to week. There's some weeks it bangs, just as equal as NXT. There's some weeks it disappoints massively. And honestly, we've seen a mix of that. I don't think we've had a banger episode in a while, although I think the go-home for Full Gear, if memory serves, not Full Gear, the the pay-per-view prior, that go-home may have been pretty great. But there were a number of recent Dynamite episodes that have really fallen flat significantly for me. This was not one of them. What I saw was a concerted effort to put on good wrestling and tell really good, intriguing storylines while simultaneously, yes, adding some funny, campy stuff in there. But let's break it down enough, kind of previewing the breakdown. Let's actually get to it so I can explain to you why I liked it so much. So the main topic coming out of Dynamite is the World Title Eliminator Tournament. And primarily the reason for that is there were four matches on the show, all from the tournament. So let's break these down one by one. We'll start with the opening match, Wardlow defeating Jungle Boy. This is a really good match to open the show. I probably would have gone with the Lucha Bros instead, knowing you were going to have the tag team fatal four-way for a number one contendership in the main event. But nevertheless, this was a good match to start the show. These two worked really well together. Wardlow hit a pair of F10s, basically an exaggerated helicopter F5 for the win. I was a bit worried that they were going to put Jungle Boy over in this match. They didn't do that. Wardlow was 100% the right call. 
He has a huge future and deserves more featured singles action on AEW. So it was great for him to be slotted into this tournament. Kenny Omega defeated Sonny Kiss. This was one of the more intriguing segments of the whole show. They did a very exaggerated introduction listing all of Omega's accomplishments along with his new entrance theme, some dancing cleaner girls. It was an obvious, purposeful, frontward facing, in your face reinvention of his character, which is great. Much needed, long overdue. I loved every bit of it with Omega absolutely brutalizing Sunny Kiss with a V-trigger and a one-winged angel in a total squash winning in like 20 seconds, but also showing sportsmanship before and after the match. Nevertheless, you could see the arrogance and the confidence seeping in. So you wonder, is this going to be a slow burn towards the heel, the cleaner version of Kenny Omega? Or is this just going to be him finding himself as a singles competitor again? I don't know. But dare I say, folks, Kenny Omega is back. I'm holding out hope that's true. But it feels like Kenny Omega is back. And that has been a major missing ingredient for AEW to reach the level that I've always thought it could reach. Next, we had the match of the night on both shows, Ray Phoenix defeating Penta El Zero M. This surprisingly started really slow, and I actually got worried at the very beginning of the match that they weren't going to give us the type of match I knew they could. Those worries were thrown out the damn window. They were defenestrated because this thing was awesome, okay? Phoenix hit and a fantastic twisting dive outside. No idea what to even call it. The guy spun like a top. Then as he tried to tightrope walk, he fell off the top rope. That wasn't great. But Penta came back with a six springboard sling blade. And then later Phoenix hit, I guess, a picture perfect springboard top rope Spanish fly, if you want to call it that. Uh, Penta then drilled Phoenix with a flipping pop-up powerbomb. Imagine a pop-up powerbomb where the person getting hit with the move, did a flip in midair before he was caught and hit with the damn powerbomb. Absolutely incredible. Thought it was the end of the match. It wasn't. Phoenix plays possum, hits a reverse Canadian destroyer for the win. This was an absolute banger as one would expect. And now next week on Dynamite, counter-programming, if you want to call it, I don't care. We get Ray Phoenix versus Kenny Omega. Holy shit. That is going to absolutely rule. The siren is going off. Kenny Omega, Ray Phoenix next week on AEW. Uh, And the last match here for the world title eliminator, Hangman Adam Page beat Colt Cabana. This was by far for me the worst of the four matches in terms of interest, storyline, impact. I thought it was a total mess. It was actually probably my least favorite thing on the entire show. Cabana lasted far too long with Hangman. I did like the finish with Paige juking the buckshot lariat and then nailing it. Dark Order came in, helped Cabana off without touching Paige. I mean, I shouldn't say this was the worst thing. There was something else that was worse on the show. This was the maybe second worst thing on the entire show, but this was a bad match. Um, It went too long and there's just no need to feature Cole Cabana in this way. People may like him. I'm not a huge fan, but that's not even really the point. It's just Hangman Paige in a match like this should have gone over strong. This is a guy you want to feature and he doesn't need to be taken to the limit by Colt Cabana. Now, the other major topic on the show was Le Dinner de Bonaire. And I saw a lot of mixed opinions here. But let me start with a couple funny things. First of all, 
Who wears their suit jackets while sitting down to dinner? Literally no one in the entire world does that. So I couldn't get my mind off that right at the beginning of the segment. Also, who the hell even considers ordering a steak well done to start? So right off the bat, you knew MJF's an ass that he would consider ordering a well done steak. I get it was part of the gimmick. Yes, it was funny. But right off the bat, you know, if you're ordering a well done steak, folks, you know, this show is all about the beef. It's all about the meat. He don't want no water. He don't want no bread. All he wants is meat. And if you're going to a steakhouse and ordering a steak, you're ordering medium rare, maybe medium. The Silver King likes medium. I'll admit I'm not the medium rare guy, but it's one of those two. Those are your two options. Anything else that's wrong. It's almost like ordering ketchup or steak sauce with steak. A good steak doesn't need it. A good steak should be eaten medium rare or medium. Now, into this segment itself, Le Dinner Debonair. This was 100% a Chris Jericho booking. The question that you want to know, was it good? That is the main question. I understand it's controversial. I don't know if it was good. I don't know if it was bad. It just was. And I know that's kind of a cop-out, right? Let me try to talk it through because I'm doing this off the cuff. Let me start by saying this. It was not steak in terms of what we on the Getting Over podcast consider steak. It was not a 16-ounce Wagyu filet with garlic butter drizzled all over it. It did not have king crab draped on top. It did not have hollandaise sauce. And it did not meet my expectations for what I thought this segment could be. You guys know how excited I was for these two guys to have a steak dinner last week. But again, the question is not whether it was great. The question is whether it was good. And I think, yes, it was good. It's good in the way that similar segments in Family Guy are good. This was basically as if Seth MacFarlane was given the opportunity to do a wrestling segment. It was not laugh out loud funny. It was tongue in cheek, huh, cute. You know, like that was my emotion. It was enjoyable to see. Now, I also saw a lot of criticism online where people saying this was good were criticized because if this had been done exactly the same way in WWE, it would not have gotten a fair shake. And I think multiple things can be true. This was good. If it was done in WWE, it would not have received the reception that it did. It would have been more roundly criticized because WWE does not get the benefit of the doubt where not only does AEW get the benefit of the doubt, but Chris Jericho and MJF get the benefit of the doubt. But do you know what? Chris Jericho and MJF deserve the benefit of the doubt. And that is why I think this is being met with the reaction it's being met with. I was simultaneously disappointed and entertained by this segment. And that is just me being fair right down the middle. It is not a segment I will watch multiple times. I don't think it's special or legendary or anything like that. I thought the face-to-face challenge for a steak dinner last week on AEW was better than this segment. How about next week, you and I meet up one-on-one for a steak dinner? That's the segment I loved, and I kind of wanted that aggression 
back and forth over a steak dinner to continue. Instead, we got something totally different. So is it an expectation reality thing? Maybe. But did I enjoy it? Yes. And I think if you didn't enjoy it, that is completely fair. If you did not like that, I will not hold it against you. I liked it. I did not love it. All right, let's move on for the rest of AEW Dynamite here. We had some dueling promos from John Moxley and Eddie Kingston. It was great that AEW went back to last week and showed extra footage after Dynamite went off the air. That's something, again, I, t- I talked about it with WWE with Raw on Monday. They gave us that cliffhanger with Drew McIntyre stepping into Hell in a Cell. Even if nothing happened, show me that nothing happened on social media, on the bump. Put it somewhere and let us know. Don't treat us like we're not in the 21st century, like it's not 2020. So I love that they showed some of that extra footage. Moxley, on his promo, his video package, he tore that shit up, saying he didn't apologize for getting paid in WWE, and he also didn't recognize the version of Kingston, his friend, but he'd make him say, I quit, and get his old friend back. Kingston, he struck right back with an equally great promo explaining why he turned his back and more. The only way to really do it justice would be to play both promos, and I'm not going to do that, but they were fantastic, okay? Uh, Kingston, I know there was a time, I think, if memory serves, where his only goal was to be in WWE and it just didn't seem like it was going to happen. Maybe he got an offer for NXT or there was a consideration there. Man, they missed the boat on this guy. Like, for them to go out and get Kevin Owens, and they're different wrestlers, different types of people, but for them to see what they saw in Kevin Owens, but not see the potential in Eddie Kingston, even in a managerial coaching type of role where he also gets the opportunity to wrestle, I think that's what it was. I think WWE offered him an opportunity to come in as a coach for the Performance Center and do a couple other things, but he wanted to keep wrestling, so he didn't take that deal. But for Triple H and NXT and WWE, to not see the potential that this guy had, even at his quote-unquote advanced age in his 40s, it's such a miss for them and such a win for AEW. You gotta give them credit for taking Eddie Kingston from not the unemployment line necessarily, but I believe he was like auctioning off some of his gear uh, to, to get money during the pandemic. And then a few months later, he's in the main event of AEW full gear. He deserves it. He's great. John Moxley's great. This was fantastic. Not exactly great was the Cody and Orange Cassidy interviews we saw. Cody's, I guess, felt genuine and a little bit authentic. And it did provide some insight into their storyline. Orange Cassidy, though, he tried to be funny and play off the Bill Belichick press conference type of deal. That didn't work. It failed massively for me. I'm over Orange Cassidy. I've been over Orange Cassidy. It just... I'm not here for it. And you know what? I don't think Chris Jericho and MJF are either. It's got about as much chance of getting over as Orange Cassidy. So yeah, at least we're all on the same page right now. Uh, we also got backstage interviews with Cole Cabana and the Dark Order. Those were awful. Just didn't like any of that. Team Taz came out. I like those three, but this was uneven. It was a little bit messy. Taz is always good with a microphone in his hand. Ricky Starks is as well. But I just want to see more from Ricky Starks. I want to see more from Brian Cage. And it feels like too many weeks, their entire segment is, hey, we're going to go on commentary or we're just going to come out, say something really quick and then be gone. It's what they did with Lance Archer for a while. Him and and Jake Roberts for like three months, it felt like, did promo segments and then you never saw them do anything else. So I want more from Team Taz. Uh, We got our women's match, Britt Baker defeating Kylan King. 
It seems like the sixth week in a row that the lone women's match on Dynamite started 90 minutes into the show. It's obviously a trend, something they're doing on purpose. Baker looked really good here though. And she is ready, in my opinion, to be the women's champion in AEW. The problem is she has no one to play off her right now. There's no challenger. And even if they do the match at full gear with Hukaru Shida, who has no challenger for the pay-per-view, speaking of not having a challenger, if they change the title, then who's left to go after Baker? Nyla Rose is a heel. All your face women are injured. Big Swole is not ready for prime time. Uh, to me, it's pretty obvious AEW does not care about their women's division. So if they don't care, why should I? But this was a good match, so credit to them. Uh, you also got a Darby Allen video package rolling off a half pipe in a body bag with Steve-O watching. Do people like this shit? Like you, the listener, do you like this? Because Jackass was popular 20 years ago and Steve-O, I'm happy he looks healthy and he's rehabbed and that's great, okay? But let's put that aside. Does Darby Allen in a body bag for the 50th time doing something stupid in black and white, does that sell you on him, his character, his ability? Does it make you like him? Does it make you want to watch AEW? The answers to all of that, at least in my opinion, are no. Zero point zero. I really thought when AEW started that I would love Darby Allen. I was one of multiple people who came in this guy has the potential to be the next Jeff Hardy if he puts it all together. It just doesn't seem like he has progressed one iota from being a 19-year-old kid. This guy's 27 and he's acting like a 19-year-old. Don't crucify me over it, please. I'm I, not a huge fan. I'm just being honest. There's maybe nothing in AEW that has disappointed me more than how little I like Darby Allen, And it's completely his fault and it's completely their fault. We also had to wrap up the show in the main event, the number one contendership for the tag team titles in a fatal four-way tag team match, the Young Bucks Private Party, Dark Order, Butcher, and The Blade. They made it clear there was no DQ since it was a fatal four-way. I get it. But there was zero effort by Rich Knox to enforce any tag team rules whatsoever. He even counted pinfalls for people who were not legal. Alex Reynolds was out cold in the middle of the ring for a full minute. Rich Knox didn't stop the action. He let it keep going. He let Butcher and Blade drag him to a corner. I, my mind was is blown that this guy remains a referee in AEW and someone who was praised coming into the company who I was not familiar with. So I was like, oh, this guy must be really good if they think he's a great tag team wrestling referee. He's not. He sucks. And AEW's tag team rules suck, Okay. You guys already know, I, I gave the same criticism to WWE for Raw. They did the Fatal 4-Way women's tag team match and a Fatal 4-Way tag team match or a triple threat tag team match where only two people are legal is exceedingly dumb, especially when you're establishing that there's no disqualification. So either do a tornado match, which by the way, all tag team matches in AEW should be tornado because they don't follow the rules anyway. But if you're not gonna do that, at least make four people legal so it's a Fatal 4-Way match and they can tag their partners to get out of the match. It is so ridiculous. It makes zero sense. That said, John Silver had a really nice hot tag type of moment. He looked like a diminutive version of Cesaro for a bit. 
The match itself wasn't particularly good. I never really bought into it. There was some okay action. I really thought that Pentagon Phoenix, if it didn't start the show, probably should have finished. That's how great it was. But clearly they wanted to give us a swerve and to give us a moment at the end. For me though, it didn't work. The Young Bucks ended up winning. Didn't even hit their finisher. Uh, After the match, FTR confronted the Young Bucks. The Bucks slapped beers out of FTR's hands. And then a guy in a bandana came in and hit them with chairs. The guy in the bandana revealed himself to be Tully Blanchard. I guess it's because he was sitting as a timekeeper that he needed to be masked. But at the same time, FTR was on commentary. So he could have just been on commentary with them and kind of done the same thing. It, It was just weird that they did an unveiling and the unveiling was to show a guy who was already with your company and already managing the tag team. But anyway, they hit them with chairs. Uh, they did a spot to snap Matt Jackson's ankle. I don't know. This, this didn't work. I thought it would have been a really good spot to unveil Sean Spears. He did the chairman gimmick. It would have made sense. They didn't just do that. None of this really worked for me. It was a not so great main event, but it was a bad finish to the show. So you know, maybe me saying this was a great episode of Dynamite, maybe that was an exaggeration. It was a really damn good episode of Dynamite, especially considering the quality of matches that we had. Wardlow, Jungle Boy, especially Ray Phoenix and Penta El Zero M. And the Britt Baker, Kylan King match was a good, uh, totally fine women's match. But yeah, there were some down points. The Darby Allen stuff kind of took me out of it. Now that I'm doing it in this order, as opposed to the flow of the show. The flow of the show made it seem like there was never really a down moment on Dynamite. So that's good. That means they booked the show really well. But I guess now that I broke it down in terms of the title eliminator, the dinner debonair, and then the rest of the show, when you compact the rest of the show, maybe there were some things I didn't like, and this certainly wasn't one of them. So I thought the finish was a little bit weak, which was unfortunate. It wasn't a good reveal, it being Tully Blanchard. And now we kind of head into full gear with a great card, a very exciting card, but in my opinion, maybe not that much momentum except for the world title match. We will do an ultimate preview of AEW full gear the Thursday before that pay-per-view airs after the go-home edition of AEW Dynamite. As I said, we will do an analysis of NXT Halloween Havoc. That'll be Thursday as part of this normal show where we break down NXT and AEW. But do not forget a special episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast coming this Sunday night, immediately after WWE Hell in a Cell goes off the air. We will have an instant analysis podcast where we break down everything that happens on the show and play it forward. What we expect to happen on Raw and SmackDown over the next couple of days. Don't forget, after the instant analysis, We will be back Tuesday for another WWE edition of Getting Over. We'll talk about everything that happens on the SmackDown Go Home show that doesn't have to do with the pay-per-view. And right now, considering the pay-per-view only has four matches, there's probably going to be a lot on SmackDown that doesn't have to do with the pay-per-view, along with everything else that happens on Raw. So a reminder, the next show, Sunday night, then we're back Tuesday, then we're back Thursday with our normal shows. As I mentioned previously, we have a lot of interview requests in the books right now. So there should be some big names joining the show as there have been in our history. I believe this is the 85th, 84th, 85th episode of this podcast. What that means is the month of December is going to be huge. Looking a little forward, we'll have our 100th episode. We will have our year-end reviews, our awards. You guys will be able to vote in those awards. I am very excited for what is ahead 
for the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. And I hope you, not only are you with us the entire way, but you're telling your friends, you're telling your family members, your doctors, your lawyers, your dentists, your dog walkers, anyone you know who likes professional wrestling, tell them about Getting Over. The other ways you can help us, of course, are by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And not just following us, when we tweet a new show, retweet it. Tell people why you like it. Get the word out about the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. And last but not least, folks, head on over to Apple Podcasts. Drop us that five-star rating and review. Let us know how much you love the show. Every time we get a new five-star rating, we bump up in the Apple Podcast categories. I think we were inside the top 45 for, for uh, professional wrestling podcasts last week, which again, doesn't sound great. But when you're talking about how many professional wrestling podcasts there are that have been on way longer than five months, we're still starting. We're about to blow up. So thank you all for listening. That's about it from the Silver King. We got someone else, though, who we know wants to say goodbye to you. Thank you all for listening. We will see you Sunday night. Bye for now.